remember we've got Joseph, 11th of 12 brothers, sold into slavery, thrown into jail, forgotten about, then elevated. He's running Egypt at this point. There's been a famine going on for a couple of years, and he's in charge of food distribution. His brothers come to him looking for food. He recognizes them. They don't recognize him. They do this little song and dance. And last week, he revealed himself to his brothers. He said, here I am, and they have this reunion. And then he issues an invitation, go home and tell dad. They come back. Bring everybody back. We've got five more years of famine, and this is the place to be. I'm the only guy that's got food. And so that was the invitation. Pharaoh, who's Joseph's boss, was all for it. He said, absolutely, go get your family and bring them all back here, and they can have the best of the land. The key idea for us that we pulled away from that was this notion of in the light, in light of God's plan. So we said Joseph had 13 years of misery, and he's been 22 years separated from his family, really living in exile in a lot of senses. And in light of what God is doing cosmically, then those 13 years and 22 years become relatively insignificant. They're not the the dominating features of Joseph's life anymore because he recognizes, hey, God's at work. And so we said for us, in light of God's plan, it can shrink our difficulties. It can make the difficult circumstances that we're experiencing become, uh, reduce them, become less significant. doesn't mean they don't hurt, doesn't mean they're not bad, but if we can put them in light of what God has been doing for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years in the lives of billions and billions and billions of people, then our 13 years uh, takes on a little less significance. And we said also, in light of God's plan, it gives God an opportunity to redeem those difficulties when we see how he can use them to further his purposes. So that's what we looked at last week. A couple of reminders as we jump in this week. You've most likely forgotten this. It's just five words. Genesis 37-2, the kickoff to the Joseph story actually starts this way. This is the account of Jacob, period. This is the account of Jacob, period. Then it says Joseph, dot, dot, dot. And that's what we've been looking at since then. It's easy when we're reading Joseph's story. It's easy to get caught up in that and all the twists and the turns. And he's an easy guy to root for. It's easy to forget that what's going on is really about Jacob. It's really about his dad and not even about him. So Joseph is the main character, but Jacob is the main point. And we will see that today as things shift back towards Jacob. Another reminder, all of this ties back to what God said to Abraham in Genesis 12. So Abraham is Joseph's great-granddad, great-granddad. And so what he says to him in Genesis 12, 2, I'm going to make you, Abraham, into a great nation. And so that's what God's been doing. That's what he did through Abraham. That's what he did through Isaac. That's what he did through Jacob. And that's what he's trying to do with Joseph. Everything is about him forming a people, and we'll see that today. That's really the focus of what we're going to look at today. How does God form a people? So chapter 46, verse 1. So Israel, remember that's another name for Jacob. So Israel set out with all that was his, and when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, Jacob replied. I'm God, the God of your father. He said, don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. For I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you. I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Then Jacob left Beersheba and Israel's sons took their father Jacob and their children and their wives and the carts that Pharaoh had sent to transport him. So Jacob and all his offspring went to Egypt, taking with them their livestock 
and the possessions that they had acquired in Canaan, Jacob brought with him to Egypt his sons and grandsons and his daughters and granddaughters, all his offspring. So Jacob decides, all right, we're going to go back. Remember, Pharaoh sent all these carts, said, you just load them up and you come back and you can live on the best of the land. So they're all going back. But before they do, Jacob stops at Beersheba, which is a place that has significance in his family. His grandfather, Abraham, worshiped there. Uh, his dad worshiped there, Isaac, and now he's going to worship there. I think there's a pretty significant thing that happens during that time. I think Jacob is probably a bit concerned about leaving. One of the key elements of this promise that God gave to Abraham was dirt. I'm going to give you all this dirt. All of this land is going to be yours. And now Jacob is leaving. And I think he's going, I'm leaving and I'm taking all of my people with me. So what does that mean for this land? It's not, it's not like people are just going to respect the fences and say, oh, well, that's Jacob's land. Once we're gone, the land is going to get reclaimed. It's going to get resettled. Is that, is that okay? Land was something that you gave us as a key part of, our, of your promise to my granddad. Am I bailing on that? Am I going to be the one where the chain breaks because I left? Should I really do that or should I stay and tough it out? Are you going to, my granddad Abraham, he went to Egypt once. And things did not work out well for him when he went. What are you wanting from me? So I think that's some of this tug of war in Jacob's heart is he wants to see Joseph. Obviously, there's this very generous offer. There's going to be a famine for five more years. He knows they don't have any food. They've been living off of the food that Joseph's been providing them anyway. So I think that's his tension in his heart. But is he giving up what God has given to him? And God meets him that night in Beersheba and says, don't worry about it. You can go and I'm going to go with you and I'm going to bring you back. You're going to come back in a pine box, but you are going to come back. Joseph's going to close your eyes. That means you're going to die. You'll be with Joseph when you die. You'll get this land back. So I think that gives Jacob some peace that he can leave. And although the land will be retaken by others, that God can give it back to, the, to his descendants in the future. I'm, I'm wondering if Jacob remembers something that God said to his granddad, to Abraham. In Genesis 15, 13, I'm sure this was something that got passed down from father to son, uh, then to grandson. You're going to leave. You're going to be a, a foreigner. You're going to be a stranger in a land for 400 years, and you're going to be enslaved by these folks, but don't worry about it because I'm going to punish them, and then you're going to come out with a lot of possessions. I'm wondering if that's what God reminded Jacob of that night. This is, that's what's about to happen. It's going to be a long time that y'all are going to be gone, but don't worry because I am going to bring you back. Then verse 8. These are the names of the sons of Israel, Jacob and his descendants, who went to Egypt. I'm not going to read those names. I'm sure you're disappointed. Down to verse 28. 6, verse 26. All those who went to, to Egypt with Jacob, those who were his direct descendants, not counting his sons' wives, numbered 66 persons. With the two sons who had been born to Joseph in Egypt, the members of Jacob's family which went to Egypt were 70 in all. So we've got 70 people who are going to Egypt. We've got these two numbers, 66 and 70. Two of the people in the list are already dead, Ur and Onan. They were the first two child kids from Judah. You hopefully don't remember that story because it's terrible, but if you do, you know they're dead. And then Joseph has two kids who are in Egypt, so they actually don't make the trek. So we have kind of 66 who make the trek, and we've got a total of 70 because you have Joseph's family who is um, already in Egypt who are there. So we've got 70, which is this nice round number. It reminds us right after the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, there's this list of 70 nations, which is 
the Bible's way of saying this is everybody. This is, this is complete. And so that's what you've got here, this idea of 70. This is all of them who are going into Egypt. Here's the key section for us. This is what I want you to focus on uh, this morning. Count the number of times in your mind I say the word Goshen. That's the key idea. Now, Jacob sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to get directions to Goshen. When they arrived in the region of Goshen, Joseph had his chariot made ready and went to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as Joseph appeared before him, he threw his arms around his father and wept for a long time. Israel said to Joseph, now I'm ready to die since I've seen for myself that you're still alive. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and speak to Pharaoh and I'll say to him, my brothers and my father's household who are living in the land of Canaan have come to me. The men are shepherds, they tend livestock, and they brought along their flocks and herds and everything they own. But Pharaoh, when Pharaoh calls you in and asks, what's your occupation, you should answer, your servants have tended livestock from our boyhood on, just as our fathers did. Then you will be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen, for all the shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. Joseph went and told Pharaoh, my father and brothers with their flocks, herds, and everything they own have come from the land of Canaan and are now in Goshen. He chose five of his brothers and presented them before Pharaoh. Pharaoh asked the brothers, what's your occupation? Your servants are shepherds, just as our fathers were. They also said, we've come to live here for a while because the famine is severe in Canaan, and your servants' flocks have no pasture. So now please let your servants settle in Goshen. Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you, and the land of Egypt is before you. Sell to your father and your brothers in the best part of the land, and let them live in Goshen. And if you know any among them with special ability, put them in charge of my own livestock. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob in and presented him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh asked him, how old are you? Uh, Jacob said to Pharaoh, the years of my pilgrimage are 130. My years have been few and difficult. They do not equal the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers. Then Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers in Egypt, gave them property in the best part of the land, the district of Ramses, as Pharaoh directed. Joseph also provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to the number of their children. Big idea there. Joseph wants everybody in Goshen. And uh, back in chapter 45, when he first has the idea, hey, I'm going to bring all y'all here, that's what he says. That's where I want y'all to live. I think that was inspired by God. I think God was saying, that's where I want these guys to set up camp. We'll talk about that in a little bit, why that's important. But all of these maneuverings that we read about here, I'm only going to send five brothers, and this is what you need to say about your job, even sending in his dad, all of those maneuverings are about focusing. We've got to get to Goshen. So there's not, they're not manipulating Pharaoh necessarily. So you've got 70 people plus women, so easily 150 people showing up in Egypt. And the, Joseph is second in command of all of Egypt. And so there could be some people in Pharaoh's crowd who are saying, hey, listen, you've got to watch out for them. They may be coming to take things over. You don't know their intention. Joseph has a lot of power. You don't know what's going on. And so I think what you see is Joseph saying, we want to we go ahead and take care of that. We're going to allay any fears that you have that we're coming to take over, that we're staging a coup. I'm just going to send five brothers instead of all 11 of them showing up. And we're shepherds, and our dads were shepherds, and our granddads were shepherds. That's all we've ever been. That's all we do. We just tend livestock. You don't need to worry about us. We know y'all don't really like shepherds, so why don't you just give us some land out in the country, and we'll be fine. And that's what Pharaoh winds up doing. That's all that's going on there is he's, I think Joseph's trying to say, don't worry about us. Don't worry about my family. Again, remember, Jacob is loaded 
and he's got a huge family, and I think what Joseph is saying is you don't need to worry about any of that. All we are are simple shepherd folks. That's all we've ever been, and if you just give us some land out away from you, we'll be happy. Then Jacob comes in, and he blesses Pharaoh. There's a longevity thing there where age is respected. Jacob's older than Pharaoh, and so Pharaoh allows him to bless him. That kind of seals the deal in terms of them getting to go to Goshen. Verse 13. There was no food, however, in the whole region because the famine was severe. Both Egypt and Canaan wasted away because of the famine. Joseph collected all the money that was to be found in Egypt and Canaan in payment for the grain they were buying, and he brought it to Pharaoh's palace. When the money of the people of Egypt and Canaan were gone, all Egypt came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? Our money is all gone. Then bring your livestock. I will sell you food in exchange for your livestock since your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and he gave them food in exchange for their horses, sheep, goats, cattle, and donkeys. And he brought them through that year with food in exchange for all their livestock. When that year was over, they came to him the following year and said, We can't hide from our Lord the fact that since our money is gone and our livestock belongs to you, there's nothing left for our Lord except our bodies and our land. Why should we perish before you, we and our land as well? Buy us and our land in exchange for food, and we with our land will be in bondage to Pharaoh. Give us seeds that we may live and not die, and that the land may not become desolate. So Joseph bought all the land in Egypt for Pharaoh. The Egyptians, one and all, sold their fields because the famine was too severe for them. The land became Pharaoh's, and Joseph reduced the people to servitude from one end of Egypt to the other. However, he did not buy the land of the priests because they received a regular allotment of food from Pharaoh, and they had enough from the allotment Pharaoh gave them. That is why they did not sell their land. Joseph said to the people, now that I've bought you and your land today for Pharaoh, here's seed for you so you can plant the ground. When the crop comes in, give, the fifth, give a fifth of it to Pharaoh. The other four-fifths you may keep as seed for the fields and as food for yourselves and your households and your children. You saved our lives, they said. May we find favor in the eyes of our Lord. We will be in bondage to Pharaoh. So Joseph established it as a law concerning land in Egypt, still in force today, that a fifth of the produce belongs to Pharaoh. It was only the land of the priests that did not become Pharaoh's. Now the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property there and were fruitful and increased greatly in number. Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years, and the years of his life were 147. When the time drew near for Israel to die, he called for his son Joseph and said to him, If I found favor in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh. Why not? And promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. Don't bury me in Egypt. But when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt. Bury me where they are buried. I will do as you say. Swear to me, Jacob said. Then Joseph swore to him, and Israel worshipped as he leaned on top of his staff. So what you see there is really just a contrast. So while all the Egyptians are struggling, 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 the Israelites are doing well. They're acquiring property, and they're flourishing. It says they're increasing in number while the Egyptians are starving. And so that's just a contrast between those two groups of people. The only, I think, sometimes reading that, some people think, ah, Joseph was cruel, he was mean, why in the world would he force these people to sell themselves into slavery, why didn't he just give them the grain, that type of thing. So was Joseph cruel? The short answer is no. What you see here is Joseph responding to the people. They say to him, we're, we're broke, we've already got our animals, we don't have anything left to give you, how about if we sell you ourselves and our land? Joseph is responding to their offer. When we think slavery, particularly in the South, we think of 1800s in the South. That is not what's going on here. More like tenant farming where they're renting the land from Pharaoh. 
Pharaoh gets 20%. They get 80%. It's actually a great deal. Uh, the going rate was more like 33% to 40% for this arrangement. Many of you probably pay the government more than 20%. You would love that rate for your own taxes. And so that's kind of what's going on there. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't slavery the way we think of slavery. Think more about tenant farming where these guys sold their land. And the way they sold it was they gave Pharaoh 20% of everything that came in. And they got to keep 80 Jacob, just to be clear, doesn't die here. He's about to die, but he doesn't. So this is fast-forwarded 17 years from when they show up. He shows up, and he's 130. We just read that. Now suddenly, he's 147. And so things, as we look at the next two weeks, really focus on the last few days of Jacob's life and how he's interacting with his sons, uh, even in some of his grandsons. So he's not dead yet, but we'll look at that in the next couple of weeks. So for us... Who cares? What does any of this matter to us? I'm, the idea of Goshen is what I want to focus on. Why Goshen? Why is it so important? Why is all of this energy directed toward getting these guys into this place? Two reasons. One, just practically, it was fertile land. They had livestock. They farmed, and they were going to have families, and so it was a great place for them to live. I think the bigger issue is it was out of the way, and I think that's what God wanted. God, again, was in the process of forming a nation and one of the ways he would form, he formed that nation was kind of taking them and setting them aside over here. He wanted them protected in a lot of ways. For us, it may be if somebody was moving to our area, moving to Atlanta, and we were like, oh, we don't want you to get caught up in all the metro area. Why don't you just go live in the country? We sent them south. That's kind of what's, it's kind of like Goshen, sending somebody to the country, sending them out of the major cities, away from the mainstream of Egyptian life, and culture, because God's trying to form an identity in and among his people. And the easiest way to do that is to separate them from the influences that are surrounding them. As we've read through Genesis, one of the things that we've hit time and time again is this idea of intermarriage and how God is not for it. And it's not a matter about who's nice and who's not nice. It, it dilutes the identity. If you're marrying someone outside the group, then it dilutes the identity of the group. And if intermarriage is a threat... How much more is a threat of 70 people, 70 men, so 150 people living in a nation of millions? They're going to get swallowed up. There's no way for God to form a people if that people is getting assimilated into broader Egyptian culture. And so that's why I think they say Goshen. They're trying to say just leave us alone. Set us over here. I think, again, inspired by God. Set us over here. You don't have to worry about us. You don't have to think about us. And also for them, then they're not in the mix of everything that's going on in terms of Egyptian life in the major cities. So we see 70 men in Genesis 46 who go. In Exodus, I think it's 38. We get a report of the number of the people who leave. So this is 430 years later. Moses, they're walking out across the Red Sea, freed from Egyptian slavery. Guess how many? 603,550. That's what they do in 430 years. They go from 70 men to 603,550 men. That's prolific expansion. That's not counting the women and children. Easily one and a half million leave. That's what he's doing while they're in Goshen. We're just gonna we're gonna be over here and we're gonna grow this nation physically, and I'm gonna put some things into y'all in terms of your identity. As my people, because that was the whole point. Remember, way back to Genesis 12, to Abraham, I'm going to make you a nation. 
That's what God's been about since Genesis 12. I'm forming a people, I'm forming a people, I'm forming a people. I'm forming a people through Abraham, through his son Isaac, through his son Jacob, and then through Jacob's 12 sons. That's what I'm doing. And so I'm going to take y'all from this and put y'all over here, this little incubator, and you're going to have tons of kids, and you're going to have 430 years to bond and to gel as my people. That's what's going on during that time. For us, God is still doing the same thing. He's still forming a people. This is 1 Peter 2.9. You probably know this verse. Put it up on the screen. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's what God is still doing. He's still forming us as his people, and we all need Goshen. We need that space where God can form our identity personally and where he can form our identity collectively as his people. Hopefully, if Stonebridge is your home church, hopefully when you come here on Sunday, it's Goshen for you. Hopefully, there's an experience where you meet God here and he's able to form you and shape you. We push small groups hard. If you're in a small group, I hope that's a Goshen experience for you where you're in that group and you're being formed and shaped in terms of who you are. Whoever lives under your roof, however many people are under your roof, whatever their names are, I hope your home is a Goshen experience for you. It's a place where God can form you individually, and whatever that family looks like, he can form that family for you. We all have to have it. The the pull of our culture, this is not about bashing culture. It's just a recognition that the culture of Egypt is not the same thing as the culture of Goshen. They're not the same. And the culture that God is wanting to form in us, the priorities and the values he's wanting to He's wanting us to adopt, to embrace, and to embody are not the same as the values and the priorities that the world is projecting. And you know that. And so if there's not a place where we pull out, if there's not a place where we're formed, then we're done. We can never become distinct as the people of God. We're holy. God says you're holy. There's two dimensions of holiness. One is we're set apart from. That's the pulling out piece. That has to happen. We're also set apart for a purpose. But you're never going to fulfill the purpose you're set apart for if you're not first set apart from so God can deprogram you and then reprogram you. It's part of what it means to be a new creation. There's some things that he needs to work in our hearts individually and collectively for us to function as his people. We all need Goshen. A couple of ways that God does that. The Bible. Read it. It's a standard. Amos 7. Amos, God talks to Amos about this plumb line. I'm going to put a, drop a plumb line in Israel, and we're going to see what's straight. The Bible for us serves as a plumb line. It, God will drop it into your life, and you can measure your life. Is my life true or not? The Bible judges our life in the best sense of judge. It shows what's lacking in our life. The Bible is written... 1,400 years before Columbus sailed the ocean blue, before our country was a thought, the Bible was pulled together. And so it stands outside of our culture and can judge our cultural norms and trends. We need that. It's so easy just to kind of get caught up in what's going on and to think this is either the only way to live or the best way to live. We need the Bible to remind us, no, this is a timeless book that's been found true over millennia in every culture it's ever been tried it's been found true solid you can base your life around it we need something like that 
I was talking to someone this week who leads a small group, and they were, they were going to get into the Bible, and how do you read the Bible? And I told her, to me, this is true. If you're reading the Bible consistently, and you're not convicted to change, then you're reading it wrong. If you're reading the Bible consistently, and you're not convicted to change, you're reading it wrong, because none of us live perfectly up to the standard. It's not about reading it for guilt. It's reading it for revelation. Where am I, where's my life not lining up? If you believe that God is all loving and all good, then the information and the revelation contained in, this, in his word is for our good. It's better to live his way than any other way. And so when I read the Bible, I'm reading it saying, God, I want you to drop the plumb line in my life. You've got to show me. Show me as a dad. Show me as a husband. Show me as a pastor of this church. Show me as a businessman. Show me as a student. Whatever your roles are, you're saying, God, I want you to show me. Am I lining up? Is my identity being formed by you? Or is my identity being formed by the environment that I find myself in Monday to Friday? Worship. This is really what we talked about last week. I'll move past that quick. Gives perspective. When you worship, hopefully corporately on Sunday morning, my encouragement to you is to figure out what does it look like for you to worship personally and individually. Bo can help you with that if you need some guidance and some hints on how to do that. But my hope is that worship is a regular part of your life. For me, what it does is provides perspective. Many other things, but that's one. It allows me to zoom out. It's kind of what we talked about last week. Suddenly, my problems and issues get really small when I focus on who God is. I can see the big picture and the one who's drawing the big picture all at the same time. And it puts my life and my questions and my concerns and my choices in perspective. All this pressure I may feel to live a certain way in light of God suddenly that pressure becomes much less significant. Community. If you're swimming upstream, you're going to get tired if you're doing it by yourself. You need people to encourage you and to hold you accountable. Hebrews 10 talks about uh, spurring one another on to love and good deeds. That's the idea of community. Who's helping you? Who's helping you think through this? Who's sharpening you? Who's encouraging you to allow your identity to be defined by the Lord and not by our cultures, or anyone who's doing that, who holds you accountable when you jump the rails? Not in a condemning way, but in a loving way to say, hey, you kind of moved off of some things that you said were really important to you. How can I help you get back on the road? Who's doing that? Very practical example of what this can look like. Common refrain. You've said it and you've heard it. How are you doing? Oh, we're busy. We're slammed. Running from thing to thing. We always say it's going to end next week, next season, next month. It never does. It's just how we live. We're all really busy. Super, super busy, busy, busy. And we all say, oh, I wish it could change. I wish it can change. It can change, but it doesn't. We just continue to live in that cycle. Thankfully for us, God has this remedy. It's called the Sabbath. It's rest. It's not a mosaic law. It's creation rhythm. Genesis 1 and 2, work-rest relationship. God, who never gets tired after he created everything, took a break. He rested on the seventh day, and he didn't need to. If he never gets tired and he rested, how much more do we need to rest who do get tired? He gave us that for our benefit. I want to challenge you, whoever lives under your roof, figure out what does Sabbath look like. It's a countercultural practice that's allowing God to form you versus our culture to form you. Not easy. Very, very difficult. Try one day in November. Pick Thanksgiving because you're already not working if you want. The day after Thanksgiving, don't go shopping. 
don't go shopping. Pick. That leaves the deals for me. I don't go shopping. So anyway, find a day. Do one in November, do one in December, do one in January. Three in three months. January 1st is the most boring day of the year, so you can pick that for your Sabbath. Find one where you don't do... So here's the the big ideas on Sabbath. I'm going to enjoy God and I'm going to enjoy relationships. That's what I'm doing on the Sabbath. I'm not doing anything productive. I'm not cutting the grass. I'm not doing laundry. I'm not returning work emails. Anything that looks efficient, that looks productive, like basically if it looks American, you're not doing it. The Sabbath was not an invention, an American invention. We never would have come up with it. We maximize and we increase productivity. We value efficiency. God doesn't at all. He says, rest. See what I can do. It's an expression of faith and trust to say, I'm not going to do anything, and I'm trusting that the world is not going to fall apart. Misty, my wife, was reading a book. It's called 24-6, written by a guy talking about the Sabbath. And we were trying to remember the exact wording of it. Can't quite remember, but it's something along these lines. People who practice the Sabbath regularly, they get 12 years added on to the end of their life. That's how much of a difference it makes to follow the rhythm that God has created for us. It's not an optional extra. Work, rest, relationship. Read Genesis 1 and 2. That's how he's wired you to work. But it's not an easy thing to do at all. You need community around you to say, hey, are you are you actually resting today? You need the word to help show you what a Sabbath looks like so it doesn't become this legalism that's more work than just working. Worship, get perspective. God, when I'm resting, show me where you're at work. I'm not going to do anything today, so you can show me what you're doing. For me, it's this is I have an advantage over many of you. I take Fridays off when my kids are in school. And so I've got an easy day there where I can have a Sabbath. And I don't work. I go to the gym, and Misty and I go to lunch. It doesn't matter how little of my sermon I've done. I don't do any, and y'all pay for it on Sunday. It's, but I don't work. That's my way of I'm not going to do it, God. I'm going to trust that regardless of how much work I've still got to get done, it's not going to happen today. I'm just going to trust you're going to somehow make it up. You're going to do something. I'm not going to do it. And it's hard for me on Fridays when I'm not as far as I need to be. It's hard for me to say I'm not going to do anything. It's hard for me not to cheat and fudge. And I'm not saying yay me at all again. I have an advantage in a lot of ways over y'all because Friday it, my kids aren't there. So it's easy for me to, to rest. I want to encourage you, find one in November, find one in December, find one in January. Write it on your calendar and tell somebody about it. And then try. We're going to take a day and all we're going to do is enjoy God and enjoy relationships. It doesn't mean you have to stay home all day at all. It just means you're not going to be productive. And if you're getting a little chirping, hey, you've got to do some chores, you can say, it's my Sabbath. No chores for me. I use that all the time. I thought your Sabbath was yesterday. I changed it this week. It's today. We also have in Egypt, real quick, we're going to close this up. We all need Goshen. We need this place where God is forming us and shaping us. We've got to recognize we're all called to an Egypt. There's a people or there's a place where God's saying, I need you to go, and I need you to bless, and I need you to serve, and I need you to love. If it's all Goshen for you, if that's all you've got is this, I'm set apart from, then you're just going to be fat and you're going to be useless as a Christian. 
But if all you are is Egypt, if all you do is go and go and go and bless and serve, then you're either going to burn out or you're going to compromise. Those are the two things that happen. It's a, we need both. It's this rhythm of our life, pulling away and reengaging. Holy, set apart from, holy, set apart for, so God can use me again. Salt and light, that's what Jesus calls us. Salt only works on the things it's actually touching. There's a proximity element there to salt that for us, we have to be engaged. As a church, we value this idea of finding your Marietta. Where's the people? Who are the people? Where's the place that God has called you? Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7. He wants you to seek the welfare, to bless the place where he's put you. You know what Egypt is for you. The people of the place that he's called you. That's not necessarily what we're talking about this morning, but I want you to hear both elements, both dynamics. There's a rhythm there. It's not just about being set apart from. We create these Christian communes where we never engage with people. It's not it at all. There's Goshen where God is forming us and shaping us, and it's this ongoing refuge for us. And there's Egypt. It's these people who we love and who we serve and who we seek to bless. It may be helpful for you as you think through this to see yourself as a pilgrim. Pharaoh says to Jacob, how old are you? The years of my pilgrimage are 130. I don't think about that. If you ask me how old I am, I say I'm 39. I don't say the years of my pilgrimage are 39. I don't see myself as a pilgrim. But sometimes, oftentimes, that label or that perception, whatever it is, affects reality, doesn't it? It can form and shape. When we were thinking about Stonebridges, we've been meeting here for seven years, and I remember trying to come up with a name, and it was brutal trying to think of a name for this church. That's what's on the sign. It's what's on the website. And there's a lot of ways in which the name can help determine what kind of what do we look like and what do people think. And I had this name, and it was from Acts 22. It's this great name, People of the Way. And Misty said, that's a cult. Nobody's showing up. Who's coming to that? You're going to wear a robe with a hood? Like, what is that? How many of you would be in church people of the way? Would you be here? No. Something about labels kind of forms our perception, shapes our reality in a lot of ways. Do you see yourself as a pilgrim? In the Old Testament, the word is sojourner. That's not a word that we use. In the New Testament, you'll see some scriptures up here. We use words like alien and stranger and exile. Those are all New Testament words that describe us. Do you describe yourself that way? I'm a stranger living in this land. I'm an alien. I'm a foreigner. I'm, a, I'm just passing through. Not in a sense that says, I'm gonna, I hope it all burns, but in a sense that says, this is not my primary place of identity. Philippians 3.20, my citizenship is in heaven. And so where my citizenship is, that determines my identity. My citizenship is not here. And so here doesn't get to determine what's important to me. Here doesn't get to determine my priorities. Here doesn't get to determine how I spend my time or how I spend my money. That's not determined by here. All of that's determined by there, by where my citizenship is. It's a different way of living your life. I don't know if you ever consider yourself that. You consider yourself a pilgrim or a sojourner or a foreigner or an exile. Most of us don't. We're so embedded in the place that we live in, and the pull of our culture is so strong, it's very difficult for us to see ourselves as anything other than an American or a Cobb Countyan or whatever you want to say, whatever the label is. 
And that begins to shape how we live. It doesn't need to. Again, it's not about trashing. It's not about pushing away. Again, it's not at all about burning down. It's this recognition that says, I'm better able to serve when I don't need anything. Marietta doesn't, I don't need it. Whatever it offers, I don't need it. Because my citizenship is in heaven, so I'm free to serve and to bless and to love others without needing anything back from them. That's part of what it means to say my citizenship is found somewhere else. And I don't need anything from this country. I can just serve it, and I can bless it, and I can love it. Different way of thinking. I'd encourage you uh, to think that way as well. I want to close with this. I don't like excluding, but I'm going to speak specifically to people like me. Uh, people who, you've got kids in your house. I think this is a very difficult thing to wrestle through. Because what what's running through your mind and what runs through my mind is, well, if I live that way, the ones who are going to suffer are my kids. They're not going to, they're going to wind up in the dummy classes when they get to high school or they're never going to make varsity or whatever those things are that push us to take on the values of our community when it comes to parenting. I'm not just talking about activities, but overall, very difficult to say, I'm going to try to, God's forming it. It's one thing to say, I'm letting him form me. It's another thing to say, I'm going to let him form our family or my kids, even if I feel, even if that puts them in my mind at risk in some ways. We made a, for us, we we have four kids, all sport playing ages, and we didn't put anybody in sports this fall. Blasphemous. We didn't do that. And for us, it was, like, again, we're not heroes. It was super easy for us because two of our kids, the sports leagues they were asked to be a part of were Sunday leagues, and that's an easy out for me. We can't do Sunday. So once we said no to two, then, you know, fair says you say no to the other two. So we were, it was not from a place of conviction or righteousness or anything. It was, from a, it was just logistics that said we can't do this this fall because of my job. But there have been several times Missy and I have looked at each other and said, that's the best decision we've made. I can't imagine trying to do that now. They'll play again in the spring, 100%. We'll put them in something in the spring, and it'll be great and all of that. But just that little decision, and again, don't hear me patting us on the back at all. That little decision and how that's changed things for us in the fall. Just my encouragement to you who are parents, who have kids at home, I want you to think about who are, are you is home Goshen or is home Egypt in terms of what your kids, how they're being, who's shaping and forming them. And we can talk about all the specifics with screen time and all that stuff. All that's going to do is make you feel guilty, and that's not, you've got to hear the Lord on all of those things. And there's freedom there, and I don't want you to feel weighed down. I just want you thinking about it. Husband and wife, take some time this week and say, what does that look like for us to say God is forming and shaping the identity? Of our family, and it very well may be that you come up that on the other side and say, "We're going to keep doing everything that we're doing and the way that we're doing it." Then great, then you've got God's check mark on that. It could be that He's asking you to make some decisions and and change some things. Then you can do that because you're led by Him, not because you're feeling guilty because of anything else. And so, that's that. If you need help walking through that, I would strongly encourage you to bring that up in your small group. Let y'all kind of kick that around, talk that around, and see what you come up with. Let's pray. Think about that idea, followers of the way. Definitely made the right call, not calling the 
church that, but we are. That's who we are. We're following the way, and the way is you, Jesus. And so my prayer is for every person in this room that he or she would know what's the way for me. What's it look like for you, Jesus, to form and shape who I am and how I'm living? We don't want to be different for the sake of being different. We want to be faithful with who you're calling us to be. I think about that song that we sang, I Believe, and we listed 25 things that we believe. And I think the, the, in Christianity, there's always a so what. You believe that, so what? How does that play out in your life? So you believe Jesus is the Son of God. How does that affect your life? You believe in God the Father. How does that affect our life? You believe in the resurrection. How does that affect our life? God, if we're saying that your Son Jesus is the way, how does that affect our life? comes to the way we're living as parents, as spouses, as men and women in the business community, as citizens. What does that look like? I pray that you would show us. I pray nobody would feel guilty about anything. God, if there's conviction, it would come from your spirit and it would lead to repentance. The places where we're, where we're hitting it right, I pray that we would feel that in our hearts. Yes, you're doing it, Lord. It's good. What our lives to line up with the life that you want us to live. I think if we believe that you're our father, that we would trust that you have our best in mind. And so living the way you want us to live ultimately is for our good. So show us the places where we've given in to culture, where Egypt is making choices for us instead of Goshen. God, I pray for any here today who would say, holy, set apart from, I don't know, I'm I'm swimming in this so deep, I don't know how to be set apart from. What does that mean? And God, I pray for any day you say, holy, set apart for. I'm set apart from, but I don't know what it's for. I feel like I'm just sitting on the sidelines. God, would you speak to them as well about what, who you're calling them to, to serve and to bless and to love. God, I pray over these next few minutes as we worship to close out, that you would speak to each of us, again, with no guilt, but just this sense of, expectancy that you want to show us what it looks like to live life formed and shaped by you and your values and your priorities calling the shots in Jesus name amen we'll have ministry teams here up in the corners we'll pray with you about anything that you've got going on uh, if anything I said today stirred anything in your heart we'd love to pray with you about that as well and then Bo will dismiss us when this song is over